Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Israel and Hamas are at war. We also discuss Hamilton's tiny shelters, a new school year calendar, making Halloween accessible for all, supporting Ukraine, and pumpkin season is here. The JMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Israel has formally declared war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip after Hamas militants launched a massive unprecedented and coordinated operation in Israel on Saturday. This is an earthquake for Israel, militarily, psychologically, the sense of uh, people's uh, security. So now a major military operation in Gaza is now underway, and hundreds of people, sadly, on both sides have already died. And as I mentioned earlier on in the show, this is just the start. And I I will also reiterate, the, the rally celebrating these attacks are reprehensible. I mean, who celebrates the deaths of innocent people? Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East calling on Israel and its allies to define their endgame. Thomas Woodley is the president of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Thomas, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Doing well. Thank you. Um, Just out today, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says, quote, they started it, we will finish it. What do you think Israel's endgame is? Well, I mean, let me comment briefly on uh, Netanyahu's comment there. I mean, this is not something that started three or four days ago. Um, You know, I I think you should go back at least to 1948 when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were kicked out of their homes uh, to create the state of Israel. So uh, half the population in Gaza, they're actually refugees or the children of refugees. Uh, So the thing didn't start uh, three three or four days ago. Uh, I think there's a lot of sympathy for um, Israel and the and the casualties, the civilian deaths and, and casualties on that side. And that's understandable. Uh, attacks against civilians are reprehensible. On the other hand, there's a context here where, where Israel uh, has been uh, occupying the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem militarily, belligerently militarily occupying these territories, uh, oppressing the Palestinians. Amnesty International just last year issued a report saying that Israel practices apartheid against against Palestinians. So these are very, 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 uh, uh, very troubling <laughs> accusations against Israel and its treatment of the Palestinians. Uh, uh, when when I think about Israel's endgame, I'm I, I'm not sure they have an endgame. It just seems to be sort of ongoing oppression and ongoing repression and ongoing apartheid. And and you're not going to come out, you know, uh, 15 years ago. I remember when uh, Israel launched Operation Cast Lead uh, 15 years ago at the end of 2008. Um, uh, I think it was Ariel Sharon, who's a prime minister. He said, we're going to weaken Hamas, we're going to uh, close the tunnels, and we're going to stop the rockets. And here we are 15 years ago, and it's the exact same objectives. Uh, so so what is the end game? And I think the international community has to push Israel to sort of say, look, leveling Gaza, killing hundreds of innocent people, um, you know, re- refusing the Palestinians their self-determination and their freedom, that is not going to lead to anything different than we've experienced in the past several decades. Thomas, we have uh, Canada, the U.S., the U.K., many other nations condemning the Hamas attacks. We have U.S. warships now in the area. Are, are you expecting a bigger conflict coming? Um, it certainly seems so. Uh, you know, and I, coming back to my earlier point, I, 
I think condemnation of attacks against civilians is entirely appropriate. I think Hamas, uh, uh, you know, of course, they did attack Israeli military installations, uh, but they also then went on to attack civilians and take civilian hostages. Uh, that's entirely against international law, and and it's it's right that that be condemned. On the other end, there should also be condemnation of Israel's ongoing oppression and apartheid against Palestinians. Um, in response to your question about it, does it seem to get bigger, it certainly seems so. You know, you opened up this segment talking about uh, how Israel has declared war on on Gaza. You know, I think the people of Gaza have felt that they've been in a war for decades. You know, Israel bombards them anytime it sees fit, uh, and I think I th and, and you know. For years, the United Nations has been passing resolutions condemning Israel for its violations of the laws of war. So I think it's a little bit uh, disingenuous of, of Netanyahu to say they're declaring war now. They've, they've been at war. It's just they, I think they've been, they've been deluding themselves. Uh, when you oppress, when you militarily occupy people, you're at war. And they are you know, consistently violating those laws of war. Uh, I think it's very important. I, I'm, I'm very disappointed with the United Nations and I uh, sorry, with the United States and their sort of rushing aid to Israel uh, in terms of, you know, to, to, to hit the people of Gaza harder. I, I, I think it's fair for Israel to go after Hamas militants. Uh, but what Israel seems to have been doing for the past several days is just leveling neighborhoods. I would encourage you to take a look at some of the video. Entire neighborhoods have been leveled. I, <laughs> This is this is an attack on the Palestinian people of Gaza. It's not an attack on Hamas, and I think the international community needs to needs to de-escalate this and call for a ceasefire. There are different ways. There there are there are actually viable ways of actually seeking the release of the hostages. I think actually Israel is endangering the lives of the hostages there by pursuing this 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 line of uh, strategy tactics that they're currently choosing. In our final minute together, is there a danger of a regional escalation? And I'm pointing to. Hezbollah in Lebanon, you know, forces in Iran. This is a very, this is a powder keg area of, of the planet. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't know enough about sort of the, the, uh, I say, I, I know a certain amount. I, I can't, I, I don't want to hypothesize as to what, what other players may do. Uh, I think if they were going to do something, I think they would have done, started something already. Um, uh, so I'm a little skeptical that this will will go beyond the current scope, uh, but I think it will be it will be a challenge for uh, Arab leaders in the region in terms of what position they take on this. Uh, on Saturday, uh, within hours after the attack, Saudi Arabia came out and said, "Look, uh, you know, Israel needs to realize that the occupation, its military occupation of these territories, is the core reason for this." And and they echoed something that Hamas had said. It wasn't they weren't coordinated statements. So I think everybody in the region sees that, and everyone in the region sees that this occupation has to end and this ongoing oppression has to end. Thomas, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Thomas Woodley is the president of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. Lots to chew on there and going forward. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters announced back on Friday that it is not proceeding with the Strong Street location for its pilot project of setting up a couple dozen tiny shelters, tiny homes for those living without a home. However, it is going to resume working with the city 
to find a better location. Where is that location and what are the next steps? Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and joins us on GMH. Tom, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Uh, Let's start with your reaction to Friday's decision by HATS. Yeah, certainly it was a very tough decision, but unfortunately we didn't think it was a responsible thing to do to move forward. Uh, There were too many costs associated with that site for such a short period of time. You'll remember the city offered us the Strawn Linear Park location, but it was really only for a two-year pilot site. And uh, without washrooms already on site, we would have had to bring in a modular unit and make sure that was accessible for for all people, including those with disabilities, and uh, build a kitchen facility in there as well, and showers and laundry and uh, the costs just started soaring and uh, so we thought you know in addition to some of the concerns that we had heard from local residents we thought maybe it would be better to find uh, a longer term site and and maybe one that already had those kind of facilities uh, already in existence. Was that I guess pushback from the community the bigger worry? Well, certainly uh, we had heard loud and clear uh, that there were concerns about about that site. Um, the challenge we were facing is that there were a lot of existing encampments along the Strong Linear Park, and our model was very different. Our model was really providing 24-hour support and security uh, in, in really a community setting. And uh, the city had said all along that uh, if our program set up at that location, then the other encampments would, would have to be moved to another place in the city. Um, but we didn't really have, uh, I, I think, a, a good opportunity to talk about the benefits of our program. And, and so uh, the message somewhat got lost, I think. Um, so we think... Stepping back, um, reviewing where would be a more appropriate site over the next uh, few months and then trying to get something started in in hopefully early 2024 will will work for everybody. With any new location, there there has to be a, I think, better public consultation process because that was one of the big bugaboos from a lot of people in the North End is that council seemed to have made this decision without their input. And that was the genesis, or at least the major thrust of their pushback. Wherever the next location is, can, can we talk about the public consultation process? And and do you imagine maybe multiple locations being in the mix? Well, I think over the long term, multiple locations will likely uh, be in the mix. And it really depends on how the, how the initial pilot project rolls out. But we do see this as, as an opportunity to help stabilize people who can access the traditional shelters for, for a variety of reasons. And, and maybe that's because they don't feel, uh, they feel unsafe there in some cases. Uh, they may be concerned about their health. They may want to uh, stay in a couple, and, and couples are, aren't generally uh, able to access shelters together, even, even people who own pets and, and who've been evicted and, and want to keep their pet but um, don't have any other place to go. Uh, so a tiny, a tiny home could work for, for those individuals, certainly. Um, in terms of the community consultation, yeah, I think everybody's learned lessons on this, and, and we need to do that due diligence um, and continue to engage the community up front. And I think, I think everybody's best intentions were to get these tiny 
homes up and running for this winter season. We know, you know, it's already getting cold out there. It's been quite cold this weekend. It's only going to get colder over the next few months. So council's hope, I think, was to to get this up and running in time for winter. And and that really precipitated the desire to, to find a location that this could get set up fairly quickly. And, and that was the strong location. But um, unfortunately, yeah, it, there was there was a lot of community pushback. So I think now that we have a little bit more time, we'll want to engage um, neighborhoods wherever wherever we're thinking of, uh, of the possibility. In our remaining 90 seconds, will the next location be in the lower city just because of all the other things that are needed around the location? And is the Tiffany Barton area maybe at the top of the list? Yeah, well, there, there's a few locations that are possibilities, but I can't I can't say right now uh, which individual sites will stand out. We're looking at a number. Um, we're we're talking to community partners, including Leuna, who are who are helping us look for some sites. So I think um, I, I think over the next few months we'll we'll take a good hard look at a number of locations, both in the lower city and and elsewhere, and and see what could work. Um, you'll know in um, in Waterloo region they they do have a tiny cabin community outside of the outside this urban area, and they have shuttle buses moving back and forth. So I, I don't know if that's a possibility or not, but we'll we'll look at all of these possibilities and, and engage the community and see what we come up with. Tom, thanks for your time once again. Good luck with this project. Project. Thank you, Rick. Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, also the vice chair with the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters Board of Directors. They have some work to do, more public consultations to come, and of course, a new site or potential sites for this Tiny Shelters pilot project. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Hamilton Wentworth District School Board is looking into whether Other religious holidays, non-Christian holidays, in fact, should be accommodated throughout the school year, basically altering or adding to the current school year calendar. Why do this and where to even start? Don Danko is the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board and joins us on GMH. Ms. Danko, how are you this morning? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So why is this being considered? Well, this is a discussion that's been taking place over the last few years. Uh, We did have a student union ask to have a a specific religious day of observance um, accommodated as a day off for those students. And that was a a number of years ago, students out of Westdale uh, made that request. And since that time, we've been exploring with the Ministry of Education, what flexibility do we have with the school year calendar? Uh, And we were really looking to the ministry to consider potential changes. But what we really found out is when we looked into it further, there are so many different days of observance. There is so many different holy days uh, for many different faiths that it would be impossible to accommodate all of them through um, specific days off in the school year calendar. Um, What we're doing now is doing a two-year process to do some deeper consultation and and to look at within the very limited flexibility that we do have, um, what would it look like if we were to accommodate or change some of the the days off in a school year, uh, whether that's a PA day is a day off for students, not staff, of course, whether that's a, a board holiday that often sits at the beginning or end of the year, or is it moving something like Easter Monday, which is not actually a, a holy day um, and is something that's just been embedded in our calendar for a long time. So 
How long is this going to take? You mentioned a, a two-year process. Is this two years of consultation, or is this consultation, planning, getting approval from the ministry? Is that is that this two-year time frame you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, so it is intended to be over two years, and it really is to do a deeper consultation. So we do a consultation every year on our school year calendar, um, but it, there are fairly specific and, and tight timelines for that. Um, so it, the, the goal is to do that traditional consultation for next year's school calendar, um, but to do that deeper dive, um, reach out to more members of the community, the school communities, to see what it looks like either to shift calendar dates or what it looks like to accommodate people in a really meaningful way and I think that's that's sort of the the focus that I'm looking forward to hearing more about is what accommodations do we currently offer that support students and staff so that they can observe specific days um, for their faith and and is that working and if it's not what would make that better um, like when do we schedule exams is something that secondary students have brought up if you can avoid scheduling something like a, a, a an assessment on a particular holy day if a teacher is aware that can help limit the impact on students that would need to be accommodated. So so there's sort of two pieces to this. It's looking at the calendar itself, for which we have very limited wiggle room, and then looking at accommodations as, as a bigger piece. Is is the goal not to extend the school year? So we are, we are quite restricted. We have to have the school year start at the beginning of September. Um, it needs to end by the end of June. That's all in the Ed Act. We need 194 days of, of learning for students. Um, and so we, we really don't have a lot of, of wiggle room. When we talked about this at board, we determined that in a given school year, we might have anywhere from one to maybe four days that we could actually move around, um, but that's not a lot. And we do have to be mindful of our union groups. Um, you know, they have collective agreements that we have to honor and we do have to have professional development happen at specific times in the year. So we really don't have a lot of, of room to, to play with here. Because there are no, or there's so many different non-Christian holidays, I would imagine this is going to be a divisive issue because if you pick one, you know, the other side or all the other people are going to say, well, what about ours? Well, and that was brought up in our meeting as well, right? Um, any consultation that we're doing needs to avoid pitting one group against another um, because it, it isn't about um, saying, you know, valuing a specific day of observance over another or a faith over another. And, and I think that's where it needs to be done very carefully. And we need to be very clear on what we can and cannot do. So what we cannot do is add a whole bunch of days in the school year calendar. We can't extend the school year um, at this point. And we are not going to be able to accommodate every every day of observance for, for different faiths. What we can do is possibly have a floating day that maybe shifts from year to year. Um, we, we could shift, again, Easter Monday is, is the only one that I can think of that we currently have that's not a statutory holiday. So we, we can't move statutory holidays. Um, really, within our limited scope, we have to be clear on what's possible. And I think focusing in on what what uh, robust accommodation looks like is going to be a big part of the conversation. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Don Danko, the chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. We're chatting about the possibility of other non-Christian holidays being added to the school year calendar. You mentioned Easter Monday. Do you expect any fallout, uh, nasty feedback if you were to remove that day? I mean, it's not a not really a holiday or a or a holy day. 
It's not. And, and to be honest, I, I went to a Catholic school. And when I was in high school, we didn't get that day off uh, at the board that I was at at the time. So really, it, it's not a day of observance, although I do respect that uh, for people that do celebrate Easter, they may you know travel for family gatherings and, and having the additional day may be nice to have. But I think that's where it's really looking at, well, perhaps that's a nice to have, perhaps it's a convenient time of year to have an extra day off for our students, for our staff, um, but is it the right day? And, and again, that's one where we wouldn't be taking away from, from anyone's uh, faith. We wouldn't be taking away from something that's been accommodated in the past that, that is truly a holiday. Many people have to work that day, including myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I can see that one as, as an easy win if we would like to make a small change. Um, at the same time, as you said, we have to be very careful about how we do this so that we're not suggesting that any one group is more important or more valued than another. Last one for you, and we got about a minute. Or Is any other board doing this or has done this? I understand that uh, Waterloo has shifted two days to accommodate um, non-Christian days of observance. Uh, I don't know which specifically they are, but they, they did shift, I believe, a PA day and possibly one other day. So it is it is something that boards are looking at across the province, but we don't have um, one united way of doing this. That would have to come from the ministry. It's uh, an interesting scenario. Uh, best of luck with the consultation and with the final debate. Uh, thank you, Chair Danko. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too. That's Don Danko, Chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, commenting on the possibility of adding some non-Christian holidays, or or one, or more, who knows, to the school year calendar. It'll be a debate that uh, we will follow up on because it is very interesting. And again, any changes that would be made or are proposed still needs a stamp of approval from the Ministry of Education. And we're talking two years from now, so that would be the, what, 2025, 26 school year? Uh, So let let that marinate and enjoy the debate. I'm sure it'll be a spirited one. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Street Accessibly is working to remove barriers for the more than 400,000 Canadian children and youth who live with disabilities. And this month, they're doing so by creating the world's first accessible holiday tradition. Well, they've already created it. They've done so in the past. They're called Halloween Villages. And here to talk about it is Anthony Frazina, founder of Above and Beyond, a volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you, you've showed up for today's interview. I know you were ready yesterday. Absolutely. <laughs> I was there. Yeah, yeah. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, listen, Thanks, guys, my friend. these Halloween Villages, give us a painted picture for us in, in how they look and, and how they work. Well, they started in uh, 2021 with a Halloween village in Toronto, and they've expanded all across Canada. There's nine villages going on between this coming weekend and the following weekend. There's ones in Halifax, Ottawa, Toronto, Hamilton, Oakville, Calgary, St. Albert, Edmonton, and Surrey, B.C. So basically what it looks like, it's showcasing how to treat uh, accessibly from the standpoint of you know trick-or-treating from the garage or from the edge of your driveway to alleviate the barrier of stairs, being aware of sound, being aware of uh, visual uh, uh, sensory uh, issues that may pose a an issue. Um, issues that uh, may not always seem visible to to people. We're, we're showcasing that early so that when Halloween comes on October 31st, people can already be aware of 
how they can meet meet the needs of people of all abilities to be accessible. I know this is in the first year this has been done. We've had in previous years uh, these Halloween villages. The one in Hamilton is scheduled once again for Cartier Crescent. That's in the Stone Church and Upper Sherman area, and that's going to go October 15th, which is this coming weekend. What what was it like last year? Uh, last year was amazing. The, the community really showed up, and the folks at Cartier Crescent were amazing. We immediately just came back to the folks at Cartier Crescent. Let's do it again. So it's from Cartier Crescent all the way to the end of Acadia. And it's thanks to supporters like Canadian Tire and Kinder and Remax for helping make this uh, initiative possible all across Canada. And I understand that children and youth are all going to be gifted a new children's book as well, Atticus Goes Trick-or-Treating, which should be a phenomenal read. It's a great read. And uh, it's a great support for understanding not only, you know, as Halloween uh, surpasses, but just how to be more inclusive within our communities to to be the best uh, inclusive we can be. So what what accessibility tips should homeowners have in mind when they're getting ready for Halloween? Uh, when they're getting ready for Halloween, just be uh, cognizant and aware of stairs are a barrier for many people with disabilities, including myself. I, I use a wheelchair. I mean, I wish this was around when I was a kid, but you know, being aware of stairs, you know, trick-or-treating from your garage or the edge of your driveway to being aware of sound, being aware of visual cues that might pose a sensory um, disorder, being aware of, you know, having alternatives to candy for people with dietary restrictions. It's, it's really about things like that that will help make Halloween uh, more enjoyable for everybody of all abilities. We're talking about Treat Accessibly and their Halloween Village that's going to be set up this Sunday at Cartier Crescent. Uh, that is in the Stone Church in Upper Sherman area. And our guest this morning on GMH is Anthony Frazina, founder of Above and Beyond and a volunteer director of media relations at the Ontario Disability Coalition. Uh, TreatAccessibly.com, by the way, if you want to check out more information on these Halloween Villages. Canadian Tire, you mentioned them as one of the sponsors. They're also carrying accessible ready Halloween costumes. How cool is that? That is amazing. And and thanks for mentioning the costumes, Rick, because there are so many amazing costumes and real um, innovations that the kids uh, showed up with last year. I remember one young lady was a, a claw machine that had little uh, toys and stuffed animals surrounded uh, by her wheelchair. And it was just amazing to see. So I can't really, I can't wait to see what they come up uh, with this year. Any guesstimate on how many people are going to show up this weekend? We we are anticipating uh, definitely a few hundred people showing up. Uh, TreatAccessibly.com, uh, Hamilton, you can go to the village, you can sign up. They're in one-hour increments, so you can sign up up to 10 people per family to come up and show up. There's going to be a magician. There's going to be you know a lot of costume events. There's going to be a DJ. I'll be there in the Hamilton uh, Village this weekend. Looking forward to it, Rick. You know, and it's it's really a good showcase for uh, Ontario's or Ontario's first accessible uh, holiday tradition, and and really that's about 
setting the precedents for other traditions going forward. Begins at uh, 1.30 on Sunday, October the 15th. Cartier Crescent in the Stone Church in Upper Sherman area goes to about 4.30-ish as uh, as uh, what is written on the website, which, uh, hey, if it goes a little bit longer, that is fun, as long as the kids are having a great time. You can also go online to treataccessibly.com to get your own Treat Accessibly lawn sign and make, it, uh, make this Halloween a much more inviting place for those uh, who need a little help getting around. Anthony, uh, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the treataccessibly.com Halloween Village this Sunday. Should be a lot of fun. Rick, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, my friend. That's Anthony Frazina, founder of Above and Beyond, a volunteer director of media relations at the Ontario Disability Coalition. Really great idea with, you know, 400,000 Canadian children and youth who live with a disability to have a particular day, apart from Halloween, where, you know, it can get busy at times. You know, things are done at night. This is during the afternoon where it's daylight and you can really get a good glimpse of all the costumes. Should be a lot of fun this coming Sunday. On uh, Cartier Crescent, all the details online at treataccessibly.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Back in April of 2022, Sean and Ed Brewing Company of Dundas launched a special Stand With Ukraine beer to raise money for the United Nations Refugee Agency, which was helping in that war-torn nation. $5,000 was raised. And this Sunday, Sean and Ed Brewing Company is at it again. Ed Mandronich is the owner and founder of Sean and Ed Brewing Company and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ed, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Hey, so you're at it again this coming Sunday. What's going on? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, supporting communities is a big part of who we are. And, and uh, obviously the Ukrainian community uh, in Ukraine is in need of support. And uh, we did a special beer, uh, I guess, almost a year and a half ago now to raise $5,000. And we just wanted to to do another uh, benefit concert at the at the brewery. What is the connection with Ukraine? Um, I, it's really not, not, I wouldn't say it's a specific connection with Ukraine. Um, it's more just, you know, it's core to who we are. We support our community. We are, we're going to do a, um, a food drive in November and things like that. So it's more about uh, making sure, you know, we're just not a business. We're a business within the community and we're supporting our community. And uh, when the war broke out in Ukraine, uh, just there was a lot of people within our organization wanted to support um, the people of Ukraine, and, and that's what we decided to do. It's a great, uh, great initiative. Of course, five thousand dollars last year. And do you have a fundraising goal for this year's event, this Sunday's event? Um, yeah. Well, look, it's, for us, it's, we didn't have a specific goal, but we really want to just raise as much money as we can and have people come in and donate. And, and uh, proceeds from from the event are going to go uh, in addition to that five thousand dollars. So, what's happening this Sunday? What can we see, and, and where are we going to be going? So it's uh, it's at the brewery in Dundas. A great band, um, Commun- uh, uh, Communalux is the name of the band. They're originally from Ukraine, uh, sort of a folk, a Ukrainian rock folk band. So it should be a really fun fun night. And uh, and uh, like I said, they're they're originally from Ukraine, so um, uh, should be exciting. How did you find these guys? Oh, now you put me on the spot. It wasn't <laughs> me who found them. Come on, Rick. Uh, no, I got a great team at the brewery. Um, our, our great uh, taproom manager, uh, Mark Bowden, uh, found them, and and you know this was a, it's a team effort. I can't. I, I'd love to take all the credit for it, uh, but we got an amazing team. Is really proud of the work we do for our community, 
Uh, and so I'll say it was a team effort to find it. Well, that is great. Yeah, the, the best things do happen when a team gets together and supports a great cause like this. We know that uh, tickets are $40. It goes this Sunday night at 7 o'clock at um, uh, Sean and Ed Brewing Company. That's 65 yep. Hat Street. And what, yep. what, what kind of crowd do you expect to get? I hope a fun crowd, uh, an energetic crowd, and, uh, and one that's going to be there to support a, a great community that's in need. We also know there's going to be food and, of course, beer as well. Absolutely. So we make great pizza and, and serve amazing beer. Uh, and so, yeah, that's obviously going to be a great part of it. What is the message that you're trying to send? The message for us is uh, the Chardonnay Brewing Company is more than just a brewery in Dundas where you can go and have a beer. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of our community, and uh, we want to be able to support that uh, community, whether it's local or whether it's somewhere else around the world. And that's just part of who we are. And that really is the message we want to send. That's a great one. I was on your events page uh, earlier on this morning. You guys have events virtually every night. This is a busy time for you. Oh, it's been, yeah, uh, it's been crazy. And uh, it's, it's exciting. We're always trying to do something and trying to, to be part of, part, of, part of the community, whether it's, you know, our regular trivia nights and our music nights on Tuesdays and Thursdays, respectively, uh, or uh, doing fundraisers like this. Uh, and November is going to be a super exciting month uh, for us uh, because it's for us it's uh, the, the month of giving back. Uh, we're not going to be trying to sell anything. We're going to find ways to give back to our community. So there's no Black Friday or Cyber Monday for us. There's only Giving <laughs> Tuesday in November, all of the month of November for us. So um, it's it's not just a one-time thing for us. It's it's uh, we think about it constantly. That is pretty cool. Ed Bandronich is the owner and founder of Sean and Ed Brewing Company. You can find them online loggershed.com. Uh, forward slash events if you want to check out this coming Sunday Stand with Ukraine Benefit Concert. Kimono Lux is going to be performing starting at 7. Tickets are $40 and should be a great time at 65 Hat Street. Um, when it comes to beers, anything new coming out? Uh, yeah, so we uh, right now we're uh, celebrating everything local, uh, whether it's our local restaurant partners, but also local farms. And so uh, the food that's going on, our pizzas and stuff, uh, is local, and we've got a great partnership with Flat Rock Cellars, and we've grabbed some Pinot Noir juice and uh, made, well, say, a, um, a grape juice rattler with one of our beers and some Pinot Noir juice. So if wow. you want to come down and try a really amazing, unique product uh, supporting local farmers, um, that's what we got going on from a beer perspective. That sounds like a 10 out of 10. Yeah, it's delicious. <laughs> and you've whetted, you whetted our appetite. We're looking forward to Sunday's uh, big benefit concert. Uh, congrats on putting this on. I'm sure it's going to be a great success. Great. I appreciate it, Rex. And as Ed Bandronich, he is the owner and founder of Sean and Ed Brewing Company, online loggershed.com. If you want more details about this concert coming up on Sunday, loggershed.com forward slash events. It goes Sunday at 7 o'clock at Sean and Ed Brewing Company, 65 Hat Street, and all the money raised is going to go to the United Nations Refugee Agency. They did this, as Sean mentioned, or Ed mentioned, um, about a year and a half ago with a Stand With Ukraine beer that was very popular and raised five grand for uh, relief for Ukraine. So, hey, get out, support the community, support Sean and Ed Brewing Company. They're doing fantastic stuff in our community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's another round of Good Haunting Hamilton, and today we're focusing on pumpkin patch season. But what goes into preparing for the rush for the gourd, and why is the pumpkin so synonymous with this season? 
Uh, Alexander Armstrong is the director of experiences and events at Diamonds Farm Market and Bakery in Dundas. And Alexandra joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Alexandra, good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. How busy were you guys this Thanksgiving long weekend? Oh, it was really busy. It was uh, it was lovely seeing so many families come out, especially with the weather being a little bit questionable. Uh, it was wonderful seeing people come out to start celebrating the season. What did they get to see and do? Yeah, so we have a lot of stuff going on. So we have our market and bakery, of course, that is open uh, every day, actually. And then we have our farm festival, which is open down at our barns, and it's open on Saturdays and Sundays, as well as Thanksgiving Monday throughout October. At the farm festival, we have a variety of different things going on. We have 15 plus different activities for both adults and kids from wagon rides that go along the escarpment overlooking the city. Of course, picking a pumpkin. We have a great corn maze. We have a kid's haunted house. We have sensory tables. We have animals that you can see. We have mini putt. The list kind of goes on for quite a while, but uh, I think everyone had a really great time. You also have for for the adults, uh, corporate functions for workplaces to kind of hang out at uh, at Diamonds. You have weddings that happen there as well. Has has that kind of activity returned to normal post-pandemic? Yeah, we're starting to see it definitely. There's shifts in that whole area for sure. I think people are starting to favor kind of the more small medium events. We're not seeing a big return to huge events, but um, we are seeing a great return back to weddings and people wanting to get back and celebrate. Same with corporate events. That has also increased in a large way as well. So people, you know, doing client appreciation events, kind of supporting their team, taking them out for a nice day as well. When it comes to looking for a good pumpkin, what are some of the signs that we should be looking for to get a great one? Yeah, great question. So I I kind of believe that every pumpkin, especially when you're using it for Halloween and for decoration, uh, it's kind of unique pumpkins are are the best pumpkin. So any pumpkin is a great pumpkin. But if you're specifically looking at it from a crop perspective, when the vine starts to go from that dark green color to more of a wood color, the brown, that means we're not getting as many nutrients coming through the vine, which means that the pumpkin's ready to be picked. So those ones are going to snap a lot easier off the vine for you. Uh, And those ones usually have that deep orange color. All pumpkins start off green, but once they get to that nice deep orange and you look at a bit of a more brown vine, you've got a very ripe pumpkin. And does size matter, the bigger the better, or not necessarily so? Depends what you're kind of using it for. You know, large pumpkins for decorating is awesome. Uh, And some people, when they have a really big design in their mind, they want to grab the biggest jack-o'-lantern they can. Uh, But then if you're looking for something to eat, the smaller round pumpkins are what we call sweet pumpkins or pie pumpkins. And they're a lot smaller. They have a really perfect round shape. And those are the ones we'd actually use to you know, make our pumpkin pies and our different pumpkin treats as well. Yeah, we should not uh, neglect the bakery in the farm market at Diamonds because it is absolutely phenomenal. I encourage our listeners to go check it out either in person at 416 Fallsview Road East in Dundas or online diamonds.com. Alexandra, appreciate the time this morning and uh, best of the season to you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Alexander Armstrong, Director of Experiences and Events, Diamonds Farm Market and Bakery, online, diamonds.com. That's D-Y-M-E-N-T-S dot com. It is a great place to hang out. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.